0: So uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeremy Dixon. I'm one of the co-directors of the Centre for Death and Society. Uh, we'd really like to welcome you to this event this evening, focusing on end-of-life care decisions in care homes. The Centre of Death Society is a research centre which looks at social aspects of death and dying. And this is the second of three events which we've held uh, looking at decisions in care homes. Uh, The third event uh, will be uh, next Tuesday evening and uh, is around supporting good palliative dementia care. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speakers. Uh, So, we are bringing together researchers and practitioners this evening to discuss how end-of-life care is managed in care homes and how it might be improved. And we've got presentations from three really great Presenters who've done some really interesting research in this area. So we're going to start uh, with Diana Teggy um, from the Open University. We'll then move on to uh, Dr Fawn Harrod from Leicester University and Karina Lemeno, uh, who's a registered manager at Kineta Manor Nursing Home in Warwickshire. And they're all going to reflect on what research tells us about uh, end of life care decisions, with Karina looking uh, particularly at how practice might be improved mm-hmm. and how the, the messages from research uh, might be reflected upon in day to day practice. So first of all I'd like to introduce Dr Diana Teggy. Diana is an ESRC postdoctoral researcher in ageing and social care at the Open University. Her PhD explored how care home staff identified and support dying residents and her other research interests are around how technology enabled care and intimacy in old age can uh, be facilitated. Uh, She's written a number of uh, research articles, including articles in the journal, Social Sciences and Medicine. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Dr Teji. Thank you very
1: much, Jeremy. Today I'm going to present one of the main findings from a PhD, uh, which is around anticipatory prescribing in care homes, also called end of life medication prescribing. And I'm going to. explain how that relates to managing uncertainty and uncertain in trajectories in care homes. First of all, uh, what is and what are end of life medications? So there are a set of uh, standard drugs controlled under legislation uh, for the misuse of drugs because they are uh, opioids um, like morphine, oxycodone or fentanyl uh, for the management of pain at the end of life or sedatives uh, like midazolam. So um, although there are other medications which are prescribed as well uh, by doctors to people expected to be dying in the community, like hyacinth to control uh, secretions or anti-sickness medication, my presentation today is focusing only on uh, controlled drugs uh, because these drugs uh, come with restrictions around prescribing. Uh, dispensing from the pharmacy, and they take uh, a much longer time uh, to be be delivered, they are much less accessible. Again, these are uh, opioids and sedatives uh, for the management of pain and agitation at the end of life. And they are prescribed by GPs, usually, or even hospital doctors at times, to people expected to be dying in the community. They're also known as palliative, just in case, or anticipatory medications. Uh, I'm going to call them anticipatory medications, because this is how they are known in the literature. Uh, but actually, in care homes, the, the word that staff would use most was end of life, uh, which identifies the, the purpose of, of why these drugs were prescribed. Uh, what are, What is uh, the knowledge gap around anticipatory prescribing? Uh, well. Uh, There is very little which is known about how um, anticipatory medication are prescribed to care residents in particular. Uh, And this uh, is is especially uh, important uh, because we know that uh, residents access uh, to uh, GPs, hence anticipatory prescribing, but also residents access to hospital care uh, is mediated by staff. Uh, So although the rationale for prescribing this medication is that they reduce hospital admission at the end of life, we don't really know if and how they achieve this outcome. So the aim of the study um, is to understand what is the role of staff, and in particular senior staff in care homes, which are respectively nurses in nursing homes and senior carers in residential homes what is their role in prescribing this uh, medication to the residents, whether they identify residents who might be expected to be dying or not, and also how they use and interpret the storing. So the presence of the uh, medications in the care home, because we have evidence that um, uh, months or even at times, a couple of years can elapse since the time medications are first prescribed and people die independently or whether they're used or not at the end of life, because the the medication is prescribed ahead of death and uh, in advance of potential need. The fact that they are there doesn't mean that you have to administer them. There must be clinical grounds to do so. And finally, the study wants to assess whether all this process of anticipatory prescribing helps uh, reducing the likelihood of hospital admission at the end of life. I conducted this study before uh, the COVID pandemic, and I did it in uh, five residential and nursing homes in the southwest of England. The methods I used are uh, qualitative. So uh, I've interviewed uh, care home staff, 25 uh, care home staff across five care homes, and I spent long hours. Uh, shadowing um, carers and uh, and senior staff. So observing what they did when there were deteriorations and uh, asking them about uh, previous residents who have died in the care home or were admitted to hospital. And finally, I triangulated these two sources of data. So the interviews have my field notes. Uh, The main findings I like to uh, demonstrate today are that uh, senior staff, so nurses and senior carers, they used intentionally the process of anticipatory prescribing to keep the residents to die on the care home premises and avoid an hospital admission. So what what was the process in which they sought to influence uh, GP decisions to prescribe? Well, first of all, uh, they monitored. The first step was the monitoring of uh, of residents' health and whether there were changes in conditions. Uh, to have, uh, to be able to um, to argue, not to not really argue, but to evidence to the GP that there was a need to prescribe a medication because the resident was deteriorating. After, since there was uh, an uncertainty about whether they would die or not, for as long as the resident was alive, uh, the, the, the anticipatory medications are kept in place. And this is something that senior staff wants. And GPs, they agree with it because the the process of prescribing is quite laborious. It, take, it can take uh, several hours and up to a day, uh, 24 hours, for the pharmacy to deliver, to deliver the medications. So once they are prescribed and they are present in the care home, they're usually not the prescribed for as long as the resident survives. And this is why they're also reviewed, yeah? because they can stay in place for a long time before the resident dies. Um, senior staff tries to ask the GP to review. The medications. How all these conversations around uh, prescribing, not the prescribing and reviewing the medication. How do they take place? Well, uh, carers uh, access uh, GP services once a week uh, during what is usually called the GP weekly 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 round. So that was the main uh, way, the main the main method used by both nurses and senior carers uh, to communicate uh, to the GP what they. Uh, Uh, what they thought, if they thought that the resident was was going to die or not. Um, Of course, if there were sudden deteriorations, rapid deteriorations, they could also um, rely on um, an emergency visit of the GP to the car home. Uh, The ways in which uh, staff identifies uh, if it might be the moment to prescribe the medications uh, there were like four main indicators, and uh, the first one could be a recurrent hospital admissions for the same symptoms. The second one was uh, a hospital doctor discharging the resident back to the care home with a letter, with a letter or a respect form advising against future readmission. The third one was that multiple courses of antibiotics, usually up to three, were ineffective, including a major infection such as a chest infection. And the fourth is an overall steep decline in mobility, alertness, appetite, so an overall deterioration of the the resident. Uh, None of these things per se um, was sufficient to indicate that it was the time to prescribe. We must see these elements, these stages, uh, in the context of uh, someone who is already very old and frail, yes, of someone who is ill and is losing uh, physical functionality. But again, the work that the staff tries to do around when to prescribe is about predicting a likelihood of dying. Is about having the, the medications in place before the, the resident has entered the last dying phase. Um, so this, uh, this quote really describes uh, that tipping point at which someone, at which a resident might die or might recover, but the staff felt they needed to have the medication in place to prevent uh, that the resident went to hospital. And here you see a discussion between a, se- a senior staff saying, oh, I think it might be time. And the GP saying, yes, not yet. Uh but a week later, um, already the, the, the resident is eating much less. Uh, they're not the usual self. Um and, sh- and and the senior staff is like, yeah, this is the time we should have the medication in place because I think she's going to die. At the same time, I've seen many people recover from that. <laughs> um, so it's one is it is not uncommon for residents to survive one or more health crises from which both senior staff and GPs expected them to die and for which end of life medications had been prescribed. So review and review timeframes. There is no national clinical guidelines about when um, anticipatory medication need to be reviewed. There is a suggestion that they are reviewed. It is perfectly legal to use the medications for as long as they are not expired after They've been delivered from the pharmacy, but staff in care homes felt because, because there were these long times in, in which the medication have been were stored on the care home, they felt that they needed to review uh, that decision. They needed to ask the GP whether it was still appropriate to use the medication in case of need. And so, in the absence of a clinical guideline, the fact that on top of identifying a resident as dying after the resident. Dies, the, there is the potential for a coroner investigation if the GP does not release the certificate of cause of death, but also there will be a referral that does not lead to a full investigation if the GP has released the, the medical certificate of cause of death. There is a referral to a coroner if the resident has not been visited by the GP within the last 14 days, which is very unnecessary. Which complicates the grieving process of the relatives because the funeral funeral will be delayed. Access to the resident body is also complicated. So, on top of identifying dying, uh, what senior staff so, uh, uh, sought to do uh, was to have the GP visit the resident within 14 days of expected death to avoid this uh, unnecessary coroner's investigation. So, this 14 days time frame became the time frame used by staff, an indicator of when. Uh, they should try to have the medications reviewed. Uh, So the functions uh, of uh, this medication, which were prescribed and stored for a long time on the care home premises, well, there are three main functions. The first one is uh, providing rapid access to symptom control. The second is to identify the location and ceiling of medical care as a primary care in the care home. And the third one is to demonstrate safe care provision. So, there was a feeling that uh, to have the medication if someone, if and experienced symptoms uh, when dying, um, helped prevent the hospital admission because the symptom could be managed. And most times, if the medications were needed and provided, administered, uh, they were uh, successful in controlling the symptoms. At the same time, there were also st- uh, senior staff and managers who said that in most cases, the medication were always present when someone died in the care home, but they were not needed because um, less stronger analges- analgesia, such as oromorph, so oral morphine or patches, was enough um, to have a, a, peaceful, a peaceful dying. Also, if someone experienced a lot of pain when dying, it was not uh, paramedics or a care that was sought, but it was uh, help from the hospice. So, at that point, it was clear that a person was staying in the care home, and even if the, it, it, they had they experienced, uh, they experienced pain and agitation, they would use Macmillan nurses, they would use hospice uh, um, support, but they would not use ambulance care emergency care. So there are other symptoms, other functions beyond pharmacological symptom control that uh, the medication helped uh, to perform, and I think there are about around planning planning for adequate care provision and also demonstrating adequate uh, care provision, both to the GP certifying the death, uh, but also uh, to the relatives. So staff understood the presence of anticipatory medication for a resident as a clear signal, a clear indicator, a clear marker that the person was not for emergency care. They were not for hospital admission. Even though medication could stay there for a long time and needed reviewing for that, it meant that the resident was for supportive and, and, in, and if needed palliative care on the care home premises. So these, peop- these people were not escalated to, to uh, ambulance services, but when they experienced um, deterioration, a time also acute, such as you know vomiting blood or uh, a drop in saturation level, It was GP and out of our GP services that were sought instead of emergency care. The third function about uh, demonstrating care provision. So um, staff felt that a death that was sudden unplanned, so without the the presence of of the medication, um, could potentially raise issues around the, 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 the safe, the safety and the and the adequacy of the care they provided. So this quote is quite striking of a nurse saying that uh, she doesn't want someone who died just suddenly for because of uh, of an acute deterioration. She wants to be able to expect and prepare for the death. Because otherwise, the GP certifying the death, if they don't have a good relationship of trust with them, or the coroner or the relative, Maybe suspicions and question why nothing was done before, yeah um, so the fact that they had the medication in place and that they could ask the g p to review them, so the g p expected that the the resident was about, was about to die, allowed senior staff to have a smooth uh management of management of the death post mortem, so the g p would of course understand that. Adequate care had been provided, and they would sign a medical certificate of, of cause of death. So avoiding that um, the death was escalated to a coroner. Uh, also, if they could hit the time frame, there was no referral, no need to refer to refer the death to the coroner by the GP. And so this allowed uh, a smooth uh, a smooth management and uh, offered protection for staff for taking the responsibility of not providing emergency care, which is potentially life saving. Yeah, because this is the problem. It is the problem of of accountability and responsibility of who makes the decision not to provide a care which is perceived as potentially life, um, life saving. Although the reality is that most of the time it can only prolong a state of very low quality of life for a couple of months. So uh, again, I'd like to stress that uh, the uh, timeliness of when the medication was uh, prescribed and/or reviewed was very important, because even if the medication was um, it was in place, if you stop and but the medication was in place, but it had not been reviewed by the GP in a long time, and a resident experienced a sudden decline, like a heart attack or a seizure, a few staff felt that they were not uh, reassured that it was the clinically adequate decision not to provide emergency care. So they would. I had only one such example, but I decided to put in here because I think, and this is one of my recommendations for policy, I think that to help staff manage the uncertainty about dying, there should be a clear time frame to review the medications. And I think that it would be best to, uh, it would be best that this time frame corresponded to the 28 days uh, in uh, in which a person dying in the community must have been visited by a doctor to avoid that the death is referred to the coroner, so that staff does not have to do two things, they don't have to both review the medications and try to have a GP visiting the resident as they are dying, so they avoid this unnecessary coroner referral. They can do both at the same time. They can coordinate care with the GP, and they can be sure that that's the right thing to do, both clinically, legally, and ethically. I, I I'm going to finish on this. I'm sorry if I went a bit over, uh, but I hope I didn't. Okay, and over to your phone. Please feel free to comment even on what I said in your presentation.
0: Right. <laughs> okay. So thank you, Diana. That, that was brilliant. Um, We will be taking questions at the end, but you you may have questions that have come up now that you want to write down before you forget them for for Diana. So if you look on uh, the bottom of your Zoom bar, you'll see a sort of Q&A box there. So if you want to type in questions for Diana, Fawn, or Karina uh, that we can take at the end, then please do uh, stick them in there. Uh, So now I'm going to uh, move to uh, Fawn Harrod Hyde. uh, Fawn is a uh, Loris Research Associate in Palliative Care and Frailty at the University of Leicester. Her PhD explored hospital transfers from care homes by focusing on the way that care home staff identify and respond to possible deteriorations in the health of care home residents. Uh, Fawn's currently working on a new project exploring ways to support family members of care home residents to be involved in decisions around their relatives' health at times of deterioration and towards end of life. So I'm going to hand over to Fawn now. Uh, So over to you, Fawn.
2: Thank you very much. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to see my slides in a second. Does that look about right to you?
0: Yep, they're they're on.
2: Brilliant, that's great. Okay, so thank you very much, uh, Jeremy, for that introduction. Um, As you've already said, I'm going to talk about two different projects today uh, that both have focused around the perspectives of care home staff and the perspectives of families at times when residents might experience deteriorations in their health, um, and especially when they might head towards the end of life. But before I talk about the specific projects, I wanted to set the scene a little bit for you and to talk about what we already know about this topic. So we know that when residents do experience deteriorations in their health, multiple people can be involved in decision making. So that might be the resident themselves, that could be the residents, family members, it could be care home staff or a range of different healthcare professionals, for example, GPs, um, the 111 service, it could be ambulances, it could even be out of hours, GPs, for example. And we also know that care home residents are more likely to be transferred and admitted to hospital than people of a similar age who live in their own homes. And while some of these transfers can be very beneficial, not all of them are. And in fact, some of them can be associated with poor outcomes. So, for example, residents might receive very burdensome treatments and tests while they're in hospital. They might experience delirium. Um, it can be very distressing to be in an unfamiliar environment. So with that in mind, it has being suggested that reducing some of these burdensome transitions could be a way of improving care for residents, especially at the end of life. Now, international literature has said that we really need to understand the wider social context and to understand why some of these hospital transfers occur. But there's been very few studies conducted in England. So that's really why I've been focusing on this topic in the two projects I'm about to tell you about. So the first project I conducted as part of my PhD and um, this project was really focusing on the role of care home staff during transfer decisions. So we're asking how do care home staff decide to initiate a resident hospital transfer within the context of care homes in England. And actually sort of very similar to Diana, they're quite similar methods. So I went into care homes. I spoke with 30 members of staff across six homes. And that was a range of staff from carers, senior carers, nurses, uh, deputy managers and managers. After I'd finished the uh, interviews, I went back into the care home and conducted some observations, was looking at the ways. Uh, staff respond when residents become unwell, what things do they do to keep residents well in the first place, for example. And then in the second study, which is something that I'm currently working on at the moment, I've really been focusing on the views of family members, but particularly thinking about how might we better prepare families to be involved in some of these discussions and decisions at times when their relatives' health deteriorates. And in this study, we've been just using interviews. So we've spoke with current family members, so people who are currently supporting their loved one in a care home. We've spoke to bereaved family members, and we've also spoke with a number of senior members of care home staff, so predominantly managers, but sometimes uh, people like clinical care leads or deputy managers. And that was in recognition, really, that those people would most likely do a lot of work with families, especially at times when residents' health deteriorates. So as you can imagine, this gave us lots of data. And I've really tried to pull out the things specifically related to end of life care for this presentation but before I do what I wanted to really talk to you about was sort of the the main message that came out of my phd work and that was that when residents health deteriorate uh, care home staff make very complex decisions and they weigh up different types of risk especially when they're thinking about how best to proceed whether that should be a transfer to hospital or care in the care home and people talked about lots of different types of risk and we um, can categorise these into five types so there are risks for residents in terms of where might be best for their health and their well-being what's that resident's um, personal preference but um, there are also risks for staff as decision makers so um, staff want to make the right decision for their residents and I think in Diana's presentation the previous presentation they talked about when anticipating medicines aren't in place how they might be failing care home residents and staff don't want to feel that they're failing their residents and importantly though they also need to feel covered and able to justify their actions. The risks for staff's social relationships with others especially if their perception of how best to proceed is at odds with other people's um, opinion so that could be within their own care home uh, colleagues or with external healthcare professionals, or even with the residents or the families themselves. There are risks for care homes as organisations, because the care home wants to be seen to be responding appropriately and in a timely manner, in a way that doesn't damage their reputation. And staff also talked about risks for wider health and social care services. So they're very aware that healthcare resources are limited in terms of GP call-outs and ambulance call-outs. And a lot of people use this phrase, we don't want to waste um, ambulance time or GP time. And a lot of staff talked about sort of negative perceptions of social care, unfortunately. And they said that they were aware that the actions that they took could further damage um, perceptions of social care. They didn't want that. And whilst there were some instances where it was a very clear cut decision, where it was very obvious somebody needed a transfer or would be better in the care home, more often than not, um, it was much more complex and staff talked about there being consequences either way so whether you decided to keep them in the care home or not so they used phrases like i felt like i was in between a rock and a hard place and you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't so that that's sort of the main message and I, I thought that was important to set the scene um she might understand some of the other themes a bit better once this has been presented but in terms of specifically thinking about um end of life care Across the board, care home staff talked about a really strong preference for caring for residents in the care home where possible, especially when they considered that person to be towards the end of their life. And um, you can see in the quote on the right-hand side that the manager here says that if we have someone who's end of life and they're going to die, they get special attention. And in the hospital, you won't get special attention because they're so busy and they want to cure people. And there was a real concern about whether residents' needs might be met in a busy hospital environment accepting that they often need sort of very high levels of support staff also thought that having discussions in advance of a deterioration was a, a really um, good way to to be prepared and they felt that it was important to have discussions with families um, and the, the majority of staff suggested that this occurred as standards so they say we always do advanced care planning we make sure that we have respect forms in place. Although the majority said this, not all care homes said this, and some were actually very honest and said that, you know, we, we find it a little bit difficult to have these conversations, and I'll come on to that later. But one thing that has struck me doing these interviews was that although staff say, yes, we do, end-of-life care planning as standard, families were much less likely to report this has happened. And I think there's sort of various explanations for this. So, for example... It could be um, a reporting bias. People might be, the staff might be telling us things that they think we want to hear. It could be a sample bias. So that actually the people that agreed to take part in our research projects might feel that they're doing end of life care really well. Um, it could be that the conversations aren't happening or it could be actually that they're sort of built into everyday conversations. So that actually, because they're not uh, sort of separated out as just end of life conversations, perhaps families aren't even aware that, or don't recall it as being like a big deal type of thing. I'm I'm hoping I'm making sense there, but if I'm not, I can come back to it a little bit uh, later. But what I wanted to talk um, about here is that although most staff felt comfortable to have conversations with families, other people said that they found this very difficult. Um, And there were specific uh, concerns around the timing of these conversations. So they said, Although it would be ideal to ask people on admissions that we've got all the information we need, often that's a very emotional time for family members and we don't want to talk about end-of-life care and the families perceive that, that we're talking about it because we think that their loved ones die in because that's not true, we're just trying to get organised and there's lots of concerns about saying the wrong thing. Now staff said that um, some of this was just down to individual differences and some people felt more comfortable than others to have those conversations perhaps they got more experience or even just more personal experiences of of dealing with death in their own life Um, but one thing that has struck me is that having a nursing background appeared to be helpful you can see that again on the quote on the right hand side this was a manager who wasn't a nurse by a background she said we know the residents and we build the relationships but I don't have the medical answers so if the family say to me well what happens in the event of something medical I don't know and I have to go back to the GP so sometimes perhaps that's why there's a bit of reluctance from staff and again I think it's that concern about saying the wrong thing and uh, not wanting to misadvise families perhaps not wanting to show that you don't have all the answers as well and some care homes um, and I did see this perhaps more in residential homes where they uh, enlisted the support of others so if they had a good relationship with their GP they might ask the GP to have conversations. And if they had a good relationship, uh, for example, with an advanced nurse practitioner, they might refer families to do the respectful and to have those conversations with somebody outside of the care home. And on the theme of um, support from GPs, staff and families really valued this support. Um, And families found it very reassuring, especially when GPs were almost backing up what the um, care home staff were telling them. You can see here it says, and families need, you know, sometimes it's not enough that nurses will give their explanations. Sometimes it's better if the doctor will tell them. When they hear the doctor say the same thing that we're saying, then they are reassured. In some respects, I wish this probably wasn't the case. There's a medical hierarchy thing most likely going on here. Um, But you can understand why if you're a family member, you just want to check with every source of information that you're getting the, the right information there. And GPs played a really key role in advanced care planning conversations as well so creating some of those forms respect forms do not resuscitate forms and staff talked about how lack of support from GPs might lead them to feel that they had to transfer someone at a time of deterioration so they were saying if we don't have support from a GP uh, those advanced care plans don't get done so then we've got nothing in place to tell us that person's not for hospital admission or we haven't had the support to. Um, have somebody have a conversation to reassure the family or again um, we just haven't got somebody to come out and offer that healthcare support. supports then we feel like we have to call 111 or 999 that sets off a chain of events where we're we're more likely to see a hospital transfer that the staff didn't really want in the first place. Um, Another thing is that across the board staff and families again highlighted um, specific issues to related to making decisions at the end of life Um, and a very big one that seems to have come up time and time again was around families not recognising that their relative might be approaching the end of life and not understanding what a normal natural dying process looks like, which probably linked to this idea of the medicalisation of death and how we no longer see death in our homes. It's either in a hospital or care home setting, for example. Um, and I had instances where people would initially at the beginning of their interview say things to me like, oh, yes, um, my father died completely out of the blue. But then as you went on, they'd say, you know, he was 97. He had advanced dementia. He had he was very frail. He had multiple health conditions. um, He was on thickened fluids and softened foods. And he'd had multiple hospital admissions. Even sometimes they'd been told within one of those hospital admissions we would consider them to be end of life, but then they'd recovered. Um, all those things for me looking at, at f- from an outside in would be sort of flags that someone was in the final stage of their life. But for a lot of families, they they just, they couldn't see it. And I don't know if some of that is um, denial or perhaps you're so used to seeing your relative at this sort of deteriorated um, level. that And they and like Diana was saying in her previous presentation people do experience these crises and, and survive so perhaps even when someone in, in is, a, is in a crisis you still don't expect them to die but uh, that aside there are also specific concerns about residents not eating and not drinking when they're at the end of life families being concerned that they were thirsty or starving even if they're at the point where their food their body would not metabolize the food or make use of those fluids And families are also often dealing with a real mixed range of emotions. So it might be sadness, could be relief that that person. um, If they die or or are nearly dying, that relief about them not suffering anymore, but also experiencing the guilt. So there's a a lot going on there um, and a lot of sort of emotion work that staff have to do when working with families. And another thing was that staff felt that a lot of families didn't really understand the potential drawbacks of going to hospital. So a lot of families might push for a transfer. Uh, but they had to do a lot of work to try to convince them of the benefits of staying in the care home and to say, yes, there are things the hospital can do, but also there are some things that they might not do as well. And finally, I just wanted to talk about advanced care planning. So things like your respect forms or your oh, do not resuscitate documents, because um, I thought people might ask, well, can advanced care planning play a role in this? And staff found advanced care planning um, documents in particular useful during that in the moment decision making because they felt that it provided them with a clear path um, sort of a directive document on how to act and they also felt that advanced care planning conversations could reduce conflict with families so that if everybody's on the same page you shouldn't get those risks around um, disagreeing with people in the spur of the moment and importantly staff felt that having an advanced care plan in place legitimise that decision to care for the resident in the care home and there were uh, certainly instances where they said we felt like we had to transfer someone because that paperwork wasn't in place but it's not just enough to have uh, the paperwork in place that paperwork needs to have a number of qualities based on what staff were telling me they felt that the paperwork should be as unambiguous as possible and as detailed as possible so to actually say not for hospital admission not to skirt around the issue to spell it out They felt that they needed to be reviewed regularly because they recognised people's needs changed and they talked about the importance of these documents being understood by families and whilst staff said that that wouldn't remove all of the um, issues out of decision making so you certainly would still perhaps get your families um, pushing for a transfer every now and again or people changing their mind in the heat of the moment You could certainly um, make things much easier and try to reduce some of those issues so That's sort of me presented all my main findings. Where I'm at now at the moment is all the, um, my PhD project is completely finished. As I said, I'm working on this um, project around families and how might we better support families to be involved. Uh, We've just finished our data collection. So we're continuing with the analysis, working through those interviews that we've completed. And we're getting to the difficult part now where we're really going to have to start making uh, recommendations. So recommendations for further research for policy um, and for how we might move forward as well at Loros Hospice. Um, will they develop new services based on this research? Hopefully in the next few months, I'll be able to answer those types of questions. So I know there's a lot in that presentation, but just to summarize, um, if you take anything away from this, it's that when residents' health deteriorates, care home staff weigh up several types of risks. These are really complex decisions that they make. Staff prefer to keep residents in the care home, especially when they expect uh, suspect that residents are approaching their end of life. They think it's really important to have end of life conversations with families prior to that deterioration taking place. But they acknowledge that sometimes these conversations can be really difficult. And had highlighted a range of specific issues related to end of life care and care homes. And perhaps they might be avenues for further research or uh, further training or even just better conversations about those types of topics. But I think understanding this phenomenon around um, experiences of deteriorations from the views of staff and from the views of families is hopefully an important step towards working towards getting residents good quality care at the end of their
0: life. Brilliant. So thank you very much, Fawn. That was great. Um, Again, just to remind people, if you would like to um, ask a question, then please just uh, uh, put it in the Q&A box and we'll we'll take those at the end. We've already got a few in there, which is, is great. Uh, So at this point, I'd just like to hand over to Karina uh, Lemeno, who's a registered manager at Kinnerton Manor Nursing Home in Warwickshire. So the home provides nursing and care for up to 53 residents, and Karina joined as a nurse before being promoted to deputy manager and then becoming resident manager. Karina and her team have done lots of work in a home to prevent hospital transfers from care homes, and she's going to talk to us about some of the tips from a practice perspective here. So over to you, Karina. Thank you.
3: So um, basically, it's just uh, to elaborate further to what PON have um, spoken about. It's just putting it into a practical, um, more practical view uh, as a a nurse working in a care home providing end-of-life care. Uh, So we're kind of not a nursing home. We are care provider provide outstanding companionship, care and comfort for older people living in the nursing home. Um, we specialize in providing care for residents with nursing needs, dementia, and palliative care. Uh, we work alongside medical professionals because we are involved with varying stages of the aging uh, process. So we have residents that are uh, younger than 65 who are diagnosed with early dementia, up until uh, the later stage of their life where we have 100 year old with dementia. So uh, we have different stages of uh, aging process here. Um, our main goal is to improve the experience of living well and dying well with dementia for residents, staff, families, and the wider community. Um, that's been, uh, been part of the teaching care home to exactly do that. And uh, ever since, we've been trying to provide uh, residents to have a living well and to die well and to die with uh, dignity. Uh, To help us in implementing that, um, I think it helped us a lot in um, uh, embedding the whole process of uh, providing end-of-life care is gold standard framework. I would say it's a really big help in getting a structure on how to uh, properly care for a resident who is on their end-of-life. So they have provided trainings on end-of-life care in care homes, and then we got support from Miton Hospice as well in providing us uh, updates with regards to end-of-life care. Anticipatory medications, um, advanced care planning. So, we uh, work closely with my Hospice with that. Um, so, one of the things I would say that made it easier for us to recognize when a resident is uh, on their end of life is coding them. So we code them using the red, amber, and the green. There's two more codes, but we don't really use them in the care home because we don't have anyone with that much life expectancy. So with the green one, the life expectancy would be months, Uh, amber will be week, and then the red will be uh, hours to days. Uh, So when we, discuss the coding with uh, the GP. the GP is also aware of uh, the different codings that we use and he's aware that if you say uh, doctor we have a red resident," so he knows that there's a resident that's nearing nearing their end of life. Um, I would just like to elaborate with the advanced care planning that Fon had uh, discussed earlier how important the advanced care planning is because it gives a guide to the staff on what to do, making the right decision at the right time. It provides a clear instruction on the wishes of the A uh, Holistic approach. Uh, they might ask that they want uh, a spiritual uh, support during their end of life. So we will offer. We will say that okay, we can during those time we can contact the vicar or the priest, and then it gives the family the opportunity to discuss any concerns, doubts, and worries. Usually, they will say they will ask about uh, what if a family member had uh, internal bleeding, and then we will discuss about the reversible and the non-reversible conditions for hospitalization. If that. Help us in reducing our unnecessary admissions to hospital as well, because when we explain to the family about reversible and non-reversible, it made uh, it gives them an understanding uh, of our decision making, and then they will have that um, they will have that confidence that we know what we are doing, we know what we are talking about. Um, it also gives uh, opportunity to clarify any expectations as well, uh, because some families will have expectations of their loved ones uh, living years. Um, and this is the perfect opportunity for the nurses to discuss that the, dement- let's say a resident has dementia, that dementia is actually a progressive condition that any, any type of infection that they may that they may uh, experience during their uh, lifetime here in the care home will contribute to the advancing of that condition. So it just sets expectations to the family. And I would say um, it's good as well to explain about respect form because some of them have understanding that do not resuscitate, meaning if something happens to their family, that you will not do anything anymore. Uh, It's an opportunity for us to explain that the RESPECT form simply is saying that uh, we will not resuscitate because the the benefits and the harm and uh, the benefit of performing an active CPR puts the resident more at risk. Because of um, could break the, the ribs, could be more harm to the resident rather than uh, the benefits of um, uh, not giving them a resuscitation. Um, multidisciplinary support is very important. Uh, we we are very fortunate. We have a good relationship with our GP. And what we did was we made sure that there's one GP to look after all our residents. Um it's just easier uh, to work that way because there will be a continuation of care. There's just one GP that you talk to, and then there's a continuation of care for all the residents. So uh, we've been working with the same GP and surgery for, I think for as long as the nursing home um, had started. Uh, and I think that was important as well because then the GP and the surgery itself has that confidence with the nurses that the nurses are actually know what they're doing, that if they ask for an anticipatory medication, then the GP knows that, yes, the, the GP knows that the the resident really needs uh, anticipatory medication, that the medication will not be abused or misused. Um, so it, it's important to have that kind of relationship with the GP. Also that having GP around, like what Fon said, some families or some relatives find it more reassuring to have a GP discuss about poor prognosis with regards to their loved ones. Uh, I think it's a medical hierarchy like Paul mentioned earlier or it's because it's not part of the um, main staff of the care home so they're thinking perhaps maybe it's less biased if it's coming from the GP or the frailty nurse then they are more accepting of the prognosis that uh, the GP is giving if their loved ones are nearing their end of life so that's a good uh, Uh, bereavement support for relatives, Um, it sets out expectations as well. Um, Another thing I would say that's good is the use of the word dying. Um, It's still a difficult word to use during conversations, but we found it very uh, beneficial if you use the word dying because it sets out the expectation of the families. Uh, When when they hear the word dying, they know that their loved ones are really nearly nearing their end of life. Um, So I would suggest not to be afraid to use the word uh, dying. Uh, Another thing that um, uh, we find very helpful is staff handover. Uh, shift handover, so we have morning, evening, and at night. So there's staff handover of everything that happened during the shift. It allows continuation of care. And then, uh, of course, fresh eyes because some uh, someone from morning shift and then evening shift, there's different stuff. So something that the evening shift might have picked up that the morning shift didn't. So it's always uh, good to have fresh eyes during the whole shift for 24 hours. Of course, recognizing different signs and symptoms of dying. Again, the uh, GSF helped us uh, with that and our end of life of care training. So some of the signs and symptoms I would say would be like uh, Diana have mentioned earlier, reduced in oral intake or no oral intake at all increased in secretions or gurgling sounds, which sometimes the family find difficult to listen to. But if you explain that it's part of the dying, that it's not actually, um, the residents not actually suffering, but actually it's part of the dying process. They are more sometimes receptive, not all the time. There's still family who are anxious, hence the anticipatory medication in hand will be very helpful. Um, very sleepy to nearly non responsive anymore to stimulant, chainstock breathing, and discoloration of skin are clear signs of a uh, resident um, nearing their end of life. It gives us uh, opportunity to inform the family, and the family sometimes uh, stays with the residents uh, with their loved ones and are able to spend the last um, minutes or last hours of their loved one's life with with them. Recognizing when to use syringe driver morphine patch or PRM or bonus medications, just like uh, Diana said earlier, not every time you will need a syringe driver. Sometimes a morphine patch um, or a morph will suffice to manage the symptoms of the uh, resident who is nearing their end of life. Uh, Out of our support, in case during on a weekend so what we usually do is we send uh, information to the out of hours about our residents who are amber and are red so that they are aware that if we ring for support over the weekend then they know that these are for residents who are nearing their end of life and then of course the importance of communication with family uh, building that relationship, that trust uh, is very important because at the end of the day, even if you code them red, amber, or green, something happens along the way and a green resident dies. But if you have that openness and communication with the family, then uh, the, the shock will not be as bad as when you don't have that Uh, relationship with the family, you haven't communicated anything with the family, it will be very difficult to reassure them that the death, although unexpected, is not really very surprising because everyone in the care home, when you enter a nursing home, the life expectancy is months. So If you have that um, early conversation with the family, then you set out expectations with them already. They will not be so surprised. Another thing that we do uh, is thoughtful first days to prevent Monday Friday. So we think of everything that we need uh, first day who needs to be seen by the GP. We usually have GP visits every Monday. So by first day, we are thinking already who became poorly after Monday, who needs to be seen by the GP before the weekend. Is there someone dying who doesn't have um, anticipatory medication or um, syringe driver directives? Then we immediately inform the GP, and then the GP will come and see the resident, will complete the syringe driver directive or prescribe anticipatory uh, medication. So far, we haven't had any coroner case. most of our deaths have been expected. we always ask the staff the surprise question that if this resident dies tomorrow they are stable now and if they die tomorrow will you be surprised? So we always ask them that um, to just keep everybody uh, understand that although some residents are stable, they are still in the nursing home they are. Still expect, I believe, just months, not uh, for a long uh, years.
0: Maybe. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much, uh, Karina. That's great. So we've got, we've had quite a lot of questions um, as we've been speaking, and um, uh, Diana and Dawn have been doing some good work uh, and have answered some of those questions as we've gone along. Uh, so do keep sort of que- typing the questions in the box. Um, some people have given questions to specific people, which I think are the ones which uh, uh, Diana and Fawn have picked up particularly, but we've also got some ones which are a bit more open. Uh, so um, I'll ask those to to everybody here and um, people can sort of just chip in. Um, they may have been directed to one person or another and we might have lost track of that slightly. If so, uh, I apologise, but I think because there's quite a lot of overlap between the presentations, uh, hopefully everybody can uh, contribute to Uh, the answers here. So there's a question, first of all, uh, from Alison Reeves, who says, uh, can a respect form take the place of a DNAR form? And what is the difference between a TEP form and a respect form? Okay, so that's the the first question. I also take a question from Bethany Simmons, which is quite similar. Uh, So Bethany says, my understanding was advanced care plans and DNR forms need to be discussed and agreed with the individual and their family? Or is this only in the case of a lack of mental capacity? So uh, I don't know if anybody, uh, I'll put that out to all three of you. So I don't know who wants to start with Alison's question first. Can a respect form take the place of a DNAR form?
2: Do you want me to start with this?
0: Yeah, go for that. Go for I want it.
2: to preface this with saying I'm not medically trained, but my understanding, so there is a very, there's a possibility i could be mistaken and if somebody feels like i am please let me know i think my understanding was that the do not resuscitate forms they've been around for a very long time and there's been a bit of a push more recently um, to replace some of these with the respect forms the respect standing for recommended summary plan for emergency care and treatment they've been developed by the resuscitation council so yes they respect forms sort of can take the place of do not resuscitate but they're often a little bit broader rather than specifically about um, CPR and resuscitation so they might ask questions around do you want to go to hospital and, and place of care rather than being specifically for uh, just for resuscitation I suppose I don't know what a TEP form is I don't know if that's something that's local treatment or treatment escalation <laughs> plan ah, okay and is that something that's usually documented within a care home or are they done are they yeah yeah or do they look different uh they came out before the respect
1: okay. and the idea was again to try and understand the ceiling of care so the maximum yeah. level of care that someone would receive um so i think the new guidelines it depends it depends on the locality yeah it depends mm-hmm. on the nhs trust yeah uh, but uh, for instance, in the Bristol area where I live, yeah, rest of the forms are substituting the uh, DEP forms, yeah. but they're trying to achieve the same outcome. Yeah, so enlarge the uh, advice about the ad- what is adequate clinical care beyond do not resuscitate. Yeah.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Karina, do you want to add anything to that? Or-
3: uh, yes, the R uh, form had been replaced by RESPECT. So now the, D- the do not resuscitate will be included in the RESPECT form. Mm. So there will be a decision there uh, that would say do not resuscitate, uh, not for hospitalisation, uh, things like that will be in the RESPECT form. Who made the decision as well will be in there.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Um, so this is a comment, really, but people might want to Uh, come back on the comments. So the the comment is uh, from Compassion and Dying. Uh, So uh, they say we've had so many callers upset that proper best interest decisions are not made, that their loved ones wishes to remain in the home and not receive life-sustaining treatments are ignored, and that clinicians refuse to offer palliative care input for their loved ones. Uh, Did you find that too? I think that was to form, but I'll also ask it to Diana and, and Karina as well.
2: So I can make a start on this and let people jump in. Um, I think I did read this comment and I thought about replying in the chat and I was thinking quite carefully about how to respond um, because it's really sad to hear that people aren't having the opportunity to have those decision- discussions if they want them um, and I was also thinking playing devil's advocate that when we when I've done some of these interviews with families uh, with staff members sorry staff members often say we have some families who don't want to talk about um end of life care planning and then it does make me wonder like do they actually not want to talk about it or do you think that they don't want to talk about it? So maybe I think both both things happen where sometimes the staff want to talk about it and the families don't and perhaps there are occasions where the families want to talk about it and and the staff don't. Um, I can't say I found it too in my study because it's not really Yes, I can actually. So I think there was, I could see both sides. So um, where we had family members where I'd say, um, did anybody talk to you about how your loved one's health might change or what might happen when they deteriorate? And they'd say no, but I would have liked an opportunity to talk about it. So yes, I think I did. I did see that um, as well. And it, it is sad to hear because... People only die once and you want to get that right and the families want to get it right as well as the staff wanting to get it right. And I think what these projects are showing is that there are there is still room for improvement in terms of the way we talk about end of life care planning. I really liked lots of the things and the phrases that Karina and her team use. They talk about dying and they use the word die to make sure people are on the same page and they talk about reversible and non-reversible illnesses to try and manage those expectations. I'm not sure I'm answering the question now, I'm sort of thinking out loud, but yeah, I think I did see instances of that as as sad as it is to report.
0: Okay, so I'll go maybe Karina this time around and then Diana, just to change the order around a bit. Yes,
3: sorry,
0: me or Diana. Um, i can go go. to Diana first, if you prefer. Uh, Do you want me to go to Diana and then come back to you, Karina? Yes, yes. Yeah, okay, Diana, so go to you next?
1: So, yeah, uh, it's a very good and a very difficult question. Uh, in my experience, uh, I did meet a GP who came to the care home to do a respect form because a resident really wanted to discuss, um, you know, what would happen if, if their health declined. was a resident with, um, who had several strokes and she really wanted to have no interventions anymore. So the resident came in, did the respect form saying that she was uh, just for antibiotic treatment in the care home. And as we were getting out, he said that his workload in general practice does not not allow him to do this for every resident. So in that sense, um, it's not helping here the GP. uh, So in the sense that we need to change a little bit the culture around this. Does this impact on palliative care? What? Well, not really, because the same GP uh, was prescribing anticipatory medications for people when this would de- was deemed appropriate by uh, the, the staff uh, and themselves. Uh, about relatives, so we need to understand it is not the staff fault if everything that relatives ask about how to manage medical provision to a resident is not uh, listened to. Uh, the problem is that relatives that is without LPA, LPAs, yeah, without lasting powers of attorney, can do very little. They cannot refuse treatments for the residents, but even people with lasting power of attorneys cannot cannot ask like to do something instead of something else. You know, like they can only refuse the treatment; they cannot direct positively the treatment. So I think that's where a lot of these uh, conflicts arise. Uh, and the staff has a duty of care, and they are acting in what they think is the best interest for the resident at, the, at all times. Yeah, they are in very good faith.
0: Great, thank you very much. Uh, do you want to add anything to that, Karina?
3: Sometimes another, uh, one of the challenges will be uh, if there's no power of attorney for health and welfare in place and then there's a family dynamic. Um, so often the the staff are left in between on what to do because the the... the children or the spouse will be in different sort of place and how to uh, care for their loved one. So usually those, um, those will arise uh, during the advanced care planning or during the dying phase of the resident. And you'll have a problem on how to Properly care for the resident, and then that's where you'll step up in making the best interest decision for the resident. You'll get the support from the GP or the frailty nurse, and then um, if needs to be, uh, there can escalate it into safeguarding against the family if it prohibits you in providing best interest care for the resident.
0: Great, thank you. So, I've um I've got a few questions which are directly for each presenter, and then um, I'll go back to sort of throwing them open to everybody. Uh, so there's one for Diana, then one for um, Fawn, and one for Karina. So um, th- the first one for Diana is from somebody who's just down a Zoom user. Um, so they say, uh, thank you for your presentation, Diana. Uh, there's a clear description of the process of senior staff advising GP and requesting reviews. How about the outcomes resulting from this? Do they reflect the intended aim of having clients die in care homes?
1: Yes, yes. When, when the medications are in place and have been reviewed, at the time I was in the care homes was within 14 days of arrest and death they would die in the carm, they would not be moved to hospital because the anticipatory prescribing is perceived as a very unambiguous indication that the person is expected to die. So they're not sent uh, for hospital treatment. Um, a bit of ambiguity may arise if the medication stays there for months without being ever reviewed and then there is a sudden event.
0: Thank you. So there's also a question here, I think, which is for... Um, fawn so uh, this was again this is from the uh, zoom user uh, who says uh, are there any examples of a nature of individual differences in end-of-life care decisions and which was most likely to persevere Uh, i.e how divergent views between families residents and the gp staff were typically addressed
2: Mm. again i saw this question and i thought about typing I think it's a bit of a complex answer so I'll try to be as succinct as possible off the top of my head um and I think when there there were lots of instances where staff talked about um situations where their own view of what was best for the resident didn't always line up with other people's views so whether that was the uh the resident the family member or the GP, and I must be honest, that was most of the time either with the family member or with another healthcare professional. Um, And in both instances, staff had choices, so they could concede and choose to, uh, if a family member was pushing for a transfer, they might choose that the easiest option was to, okay, I'm going to do the transfer for lots of reasons. So for that reason around, what if I don't transfer that person And actually, this time tomorrow, it turns out they're very unwell and they should have gone. That puts me personally at at risk. It's risky for the resident. It's risky for the care homes. All these sort of risks I talked about in my presentation. Um, They may choose to try to address that and to have a conversation with a family member. Or they may choose to enlist the support of others. So like a third party. So, for example, when the care home staff were um, bringing in the GP to try to talk to a family member, if a family was pushing for a transfer that they felt wasn't needed. I think it was a little bit different with healthcare professionals, especially from the view of care home staff, because they were saying things like, I have called a GP or I've called an ambulance because I need support. That person has advised that we should send a resident to hospital. I'm going to find it really difficult to argue against that now because I've called to say, I'm not sure and I need support. How do I justify acting against that advice and importantly I think for staff and I know I'm talking prim- primarily from the staff view here probably because I know my PhD data much better than the family's data that we're still working on I think staff found it sort of more difficult to justify doing less if that makes sense so of they found course. it more difficult to justify not transferring somebody's hospital or not not calling 999 and I, I think that was very much about that fear of being accused of, fa- of failing to fulfil a duty of care. Um, sometimes it was easier to justify doing more. But again, whether that's clinically appropriate for the resident, I'm not sure. But I actually would like to do some more work in the future, looking, about, looking specifically at these negotiations, because whilst my PhD focused on the views of staff and this new project has focused on the views of families, I've not seen much in practice in terms of those actual negotiations taking place. And I think it'd be really interesting. So thank you for that question.
0: Great. Thank you. So there's a question, a couple of questions now uh, from which I think were for Karina, actually, um, or three, in fact. So uh, I'll read them all out, Karina, and then you can sort of take them one by one. It's because some of them are quite short. So uh, one was about the uh, do you have any data about the average time for the administration of morphine Uh, and I'm trying to get the pronunciation of this right Midazolam uh, to the time of death Um, and there's another question about whether you have uh, access to a hospice support team so maybe if you just answer those two first and I'll come and give you the third one after
3: um, no, we don't have any data about the average time, but I would say once the syringe driver has started because of the type of medication that's being administered to the body, it slows down uh, the heart rate, it slows down all the functions. That it, it, uh, I'm not going to say that the, the resident will die faster, but... Um, because of the medications that you're introducing to the body, it contributes to the death, the, 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 for, uh, of the dying resident. So once the surgege driver started, you have kind of idea that within perhaps within the next couple of hours, the next 24 hours, the resident will be uh, will, will die.
0: Okay. Good. Thank you. Uh, there was a question about whether you have um, uh, answers yes. to it. Uh,
3: yes. Uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, My own hospice in Warwick, I think they they got the funding and they provided us with a really uh, intensive and uh, end of life training for everyone. There was for care support for the nurses as well. So I think it's uh, for the carers, there's one whole day for them, and then for the nurses, there's three whole day sessions that they provided uh, for the nurses. So
0: Thank you. From the Great. So the next question is from Bethany Simmons, and I'll, I'll um, uh, it's for Karina, so I'll ask this to you first, Karina, but other people might also have a view on this. So the care that your home provides sounds very high quality and best practice, however... I wonder how typical you think this level of care is more generally in perhaps larger for-profit care homes where staff generally receive less training, pay, and there's a greater staff resident ratio.
3: I think uh, I would say it depends on the willingness of the staff and how uh, assertive the manager will be in attacking what is, what is important in her care home because we got trainings from Enrich um or from phone. Uh, that means that we didn't have to pay. Uh, but since we've built a good relationship with phone and other researchers, we have that access of different uh trainings that we could get from Enrich. So I think it, it depends on uh uh the manager and the willingness of the staff and the support of the proprietor, I would say. Um but It's not, it's
0: not impossible. Okay, thanks. Uh, Thank you for that answer. Uh, I'll go to Diana next, because Diana, I know you went to a number of different homes when you were doing your field work.
1: Same question.
0: Yeah, same question. So, um, I mean, how uh, do you think that in, maybe in in for-profit care homes, there's differences in in terms of the type of care provided, you know, where people maybe receive less training or pay? And uh, there's... Differences yeah. in staff ratios and things.
1: So I think that in all care homes where the relationship between the GP and usually it's the GPs, yeah, is more than one GP that will attend the care home on a weekly basis and in taking turns. So in care homes where which are bigger, which maybe there is more uh, turnover of staff and even managers, so those relationships are not very strong. Uh, staff will feel less confident in taking risks. Yeah. So in a, a concerning anticipatory medications, if they've, they stayed in place, stored in a care home for like two or three months without a review, and then there is something that appears like an unexpected or sudden deterioration, staff will be less prone in saying, OK, let's wait it out. Don't call the ambulance. Let's call the GP because they will be uh, less confident that the GP will prioritize coming to the care home in time. So, on that occasion, they might decide, okay, even if I feel there is a strong indication that this resident has been very unwell, yeah, they were about to die once already and the medication has been prescribed, am I taking the responsibility of withholding this emergency car now? It might be that this, the relation with the GP is not good. They will do it because they don't know if the GP agrees with them not calling an ambulance since so much has elapsed. Yeah, since so time has alo- so much time has elapsed alo- since that decision to prescribe the anticipatory medication has been made. This is why I think policies should prescribe a time frame for review so that everyone is on the same page and that indication is clear. Medication in place, prescribed or reviewed within X days, they're good. They can be used if needed. They do indicate that a person is expected to die we will not provide ambulance emergency care. We keep the person here for supportive and palliative care. Uh,
2: so yes.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Fawn. do you want to add anything to that uh, answer?
2: Um, yes, just a little bit, please. And I suppose the question around um, like, how typical um, is Carina and uh, experience of end-of-life care in care homes, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I suppose the majority of care homes in England are for profit, so it's probably hard to make real comparisons mm-hmm. between yeah. for profit and not-for-profit but there are lots of different variables you can compare care homes on to so like bed size. You might be in a chain, but how big is that chain? Is it three or is it 300? Um, do you have your nurses on site? What's your local healthcare setup like? So do you have lots of support from your GPs and your hospice? Um, but I think what Diana was saying about that relationship with GPs is, is key. And I know that, um, the staff at Kind Manor have been really working on their relationship with their GP practice for a long time. Um, and I think there's something actually about leadership. And I know Karina said about it will depend on the manager and how they lead. But you can see that in that Karina and Paula as well lead their team, that they, they're willing to have conversations with families. And that's sort of a message that filters down to the staff team. And I think if you can see senior members of staff having those conversations confidently, you can sort of learn that language about how to talk to families. I imagine that's really reassuring for care homes. So I don't know how typical it is but I think there are those I think those are the two key things around that having the backup from the GPs and having the, the strong leadership.
0: Yeah thank you very much. Um, so we, uh, we've got about five minutes left so I think I'll probably just um, ask one more question which I'll just put out to everybody and then there's also a number of comments and uh, responses that people have put in the chat which people might want to just have a look at. Uh, but the, the last question is uh, from I think Saira Latif Mian, I'm not sure whether first name and the last name begins and ends, I'm afraid. So apologies if I've I've mangled your name there. So uh, they say, I'm asking this because I would expect a GP who prescribes a drug to to a resident uh, would have an idea about how potent the dose might be for somebody who's extremely emaciated. Uh, Also, how can a nurse or GP be sure drugs would not have an adverse side effect on someone? So I think, Karina, that was probably put in the chat around the time when you were talking. So do you want to try and take that one first maybe?
3: Yes, Um, so, well, there's a guideline on how much medication you can introduce in syringe driver. It depends also whether they're already in morphine patch, how much analgesics they're already taking, and then the GP will uh, calculate uh, the appropriate starting dose um, for the syringe driver, so there, there is a guideline for uh, the use of syringe driver and how much medication uh, uh, increments you have and uh, how much dosage you you have to start with, um, depending on what uh, how much analogies, analogies the resident is already having. So the, the GP is aware. Um,
0: Great, thank you. Um Diana Ruffon, do you want to add anything to that?
3: Well, I
1: think the 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 work phone is doing with the relatives is very valuable, uh, because as, as we've seen, there are um there are many ways yeah, in, in which you can influence uh someone's uh, last days of lives. Um and there are many different ways in which people feel about it. So I think that the work phone is doing and also in part I'm doing is trying to uh Make all those conversations more visible and have uh, a discussion about it that is um th- it is a public discussion yeah, without thinking that always oh, all the fault of some people are not doing the job properly somewhere yeah because because everyone is always trying to do the right thing here is that we also sometimes have different ideas about what is the right thing, and also we have medical hierarchies so different powers in uh, decision making
2: uh yeah Born. might surprise you but there's nothing further from me for that question yeah.
0: I like okay thank you very much um so uh, i think we're almost out of time so before people uh, have to leave i just want to uh, remind people we've got a further event um next week which is a tuesday at seven o'clock um th- the event is about supporting good palliative dementia care and we've got um Dr. Nathan Davies from UCL who's uh, coming to speak to us. I've put the uh, link uh, for the event that you can register for in the chat. Um, so he's going to talk about the, the work that him and his team have done around um, decision aids for end-of-life care and dementia, and a set of rules of thumbs for practitioners making end-of-life care decisions Uh, for for those with dementia as well. And uh, these rules of thumb have been successfully implemented in some UK NHS hospitals, general practices and hospices. So it will be really nice to have him here. uh, The lectures to commemorate Beatrice Godwin, who is a a student with our research centre, who uh, sadly died prematurely and had a, a very close interest in dementia care. So the event's free as well. So please do register and we'd love to see you all there. Um, there's a few more comments down the bottom, so thank you very much uh, for your comments. Uh, the majority I haven't read out have been um, thanking uh, Diana, Karina, and Fawn for their presentations and, and saying that they they found it very useful. Uh, I too would like to, to thank all the speakers uh, for coming and giving us the, the benefit of their experience, both from research and practice. And it's been great to see so much um, uh fruitful conversation between the, the three speakers this evening so thanks to all of you for for, for uh, speaking uh diana karina and fawn and thank you very much to all of you for attending this evening and we really look forward to seeing you at future center for death and society events